John is my name. <laughs> and Ian is my name. And you almost forgot the name of our podcast, didn't you? It did take me a while to remember what we were called. But that's because, listener, to sneak behind the curtain, the jingle at the start only gets put on in post-production. That's true. So it wasn't like that's I was true. being so stupid that I just heard the jingle and then forgot it. You yeah. know. That's, I mean, to be fair, that's true. And I mean, it's, it's a Sunday afternoon. It's half past two. I imagine you've probably been sitting drinking sherry all morning. Oh, yes, very much so. Um, pillow fights later, but sherry uh, just now. Um, so we'll we'll press on with the podcast. So hopefully the sherry won't kick in until later. <laughs> well, as long as you've got that, you've, you've been drinking that slow acting sherry that takes maybe like 45 minutes <laughs> to kick in, we'll be fine. <laughs> it's an odd thing, sherry. In the sense that, I mean, this isn't the Sherry podcast, don't worry. But those glasses that you serve <laughs> Sherry in, when did that become a thing? I don't know. It's very odd. Like, most glasses, I mean, I understand pint glasses because, you know, alcohol is less, um, you know, um, less volume of alcohol per litre. So, therefore, you mm. put it in a pint glass because um, you have more of it. I get shot glasses, long glasses for gin and tonics, etc. But the sherry glass. <laughs> That's a question mark for me. It's an unusual uh, design. I think it was I mean, unusual I must start admit, I've, I've never owned a sherry glass. No, no. I think our, gen- our parents' generation might be the last generation oh. to ever own this a sherry glass. <laughs> This is quite tragic. There'll probably be some sherry glass maker listening to this, crying into his tissue, looking at all these unwanted sherry glasses that he's just made this morning. He's like, oh, and I thought it was just because of COVID that nobody wanted my sherry glasses. (laughs) And to be fair, it's not even him. It's not even even the sherry glasses' fault. Basically, society has moved on in that couples move in together more often before they get married. Mm. Therefore, the wedding presents are not what they once were. Sherry glasses and port glasses, I imagine, were very regular wedding present gifts. Yeah. And now we well, just I don't mean, have them. I know, but like, see when you watch films and people bring wedding presents, loads of people bring toasters. Yes. Who doesn't have a toaster in their house? <laughs> <laughs> Who's sitting there with just eating dry bread going, oh, I need to get married soon because I, I could really do some toast. Yeah. I mean, I can't afford to go to Asda and buy myself a 14-pound toaster. I just need to get married. I'll pay £32,000 on a wedding just so I can have some nice toast. Again, I think that's the changing mores of society and I think toasters used to be around about a 30 £40, £50 price range. Yeah, that's true. You know, now kettles, you can get a kettle for £4. Yeah, that's also true. I mean, that's the thing. Less people are probably getting married as well. Yes. So there's less need for wedding presents. And sherry glasses. And sherry glasses. Anyway, this isn't getting the baby bath, Ian. Um, it's not. How was your week? Um, week's been fine. Uh, another week in lockdown. Another week of doing very little of any significance at all. Is that uh, allowed you a chance to, per chance, look at the news? Well, I have been looking at the news because that feels like 
is all we have is the news, isn't it? Well, isn't it a, right a weird world where nobody is doing anything and yet there's so much news? It's strange. It feels like we're in a time of heightened news, despite, you know, this idea that there's absolutely nothing going on in the world. And yet we've got this constant stream of huge stories happening basically every single day. It's um, it's kind of crazy. It is. It is. What's caught your eye? Well, I mean, obviously, I mean, the biggest story this week would have to be um, yesterday's news, Saturday, when we saw the the anti, I don't, I don't know what they're calling themselves, but the, pe- the people who initially claimed that they were protesting against the theft and damage of statues, and then they started, they kind of rebranded themselves in the same day as the, the, the anti-Black Lives Matter protesters. Um, their antics yesterday were probably the most noteworthy in the news. Did, did you catch the news yesterday and see these pictures? I did see some of the footage, I must admit. It's odd. I mean, I haven't seen this, that they've rebranded themselves the anti-Black Lives Matter protesters, because really, if you parse that, and we as English graduates could do that... Um, we do like a parse. ...is that anti-Black Lives Matter... I'm sure you could pretty much rearrange that to Black Lives Don't Matter. Yes, if you were to move the words around ever so slightly, it becomes Black Lives Don't Matter or We're Racist is probably what the banners should have been saying. Yes, and it's an odd it's an odd flag, really, or a lot, an odd hill to die on, should I say, that people are now... This is the thing that's getting them out of their houses and going yeah. to protest and going to stand around war memorials and... And, and, and statues that this is the thing this on this hill they were willing to die this shall not pass we will mm. not allow a statue of somebody whose name we probably didn't know last week to be removed yes the the, the one that was was it in brighton yeah no uh bristol bristol and it was a brit um <laughs> yes the, the statue in bristol that was thrown in a lake I imagine most of the people who were quite outraged by that did not know the name of the man um, that the statue was built. I, I can't even remember his name. No, that's terrible. But I'm not protesting against it. No, and one of the odd things about statues, one of the things that, I mean, statues isn't the point, and, and, and I think that this is the British people, I don't even just say the British media, I think the British people as a whole have a great ability to take a an issue of great matter and reduce it down to the trivialities that don't matter. But uh, one of the things about statues is, and I'm not sure if you if you find the same, but I never know who's on a statue. Like Nelson's column, yep, got that one down. Lord Nelson, mm-hmm. he's up there at the top. But yep. once you get past those statues, I, for example, um, when I lived in Glasgow, I had to go through George Square in Glasgow um, every day. Every single day I had to pass through George Square on my way uh, to where I was going and then back again because I had to get home. And that was for about two years. And I passed those statues in George Square every single day. And I could not tell you one person that's on one of those statues. No, I'm the same. Is there one called George? Uh, because Mr. Square, yes, <laughs> or did he they just named... get the square named after him and he didn't get a statue? Like, I genuinely don't know. Like, I remember no. on a certain occasion stopping myself to look at the name of, of who was on the statue because I remember thinking to myself, John, you don't know who these statues are. But once I'd walked past them, I'd completely forgotten again. 
Yes. And in, in the whole of Glasgow, which is the town, or the city rather, where I've spent most of my time, apart from the Donald Dewar statue that's right outside mm-hmm. the Glasgow Royal Concert Hall, I don't know who's on any statues. Yeah, you see, you stole my thunder. I was going to name check Donald Dewar as well, because that's the only one I can think of. Oh, no, I've got another one. Just near near Kelvin Grove Park um, on... Um, Oh, I forgot the name of the street now, but there's a statue of Lobby Dosser, which is a cartoon character, I think. Is it? I think so. <laughs> it's uh, a good name. I think it's this cartoon character. It's just some weird little statue thing that I've walked past and I do remember thinking, oh, I know what that is. Um, but they're the only two statues I know. And it's a very odd thing to, to really want to defend statues. It's a strange. Well, I mean, I watched this footage yesterday. I, I saw that you know they started off early in the morning, and I mean, I don't know. There was something kind of warming about it at first because obviously we don't have Euro two thousand twenty <laughs> just now, and it felt at the beginning, you know, like when the England fans usually arrive at these tournaments, the footage we saw at the start where they're all wearing their shorts, they're all chanting "Ingerland, Ingerland," and and lobbing beer cans at the public and the police. It did just feel like England were at a, a football final yesterday. Right. Well, that's <laughs> so that's something incredibly depressing. <laughs> but there was, I, I don't know, the the chairman of the Conservative Party yesterday, after all this had happened, and I thought this was quite a Trumpy thing to do. There was a, last weekend, I think there was a lot of, and, you know, I understand there was some scuffling and some violence erupting at rallies. Mm. And there was criticism of that, you know, people not behaving within the law. But then yesterday, when this happened, and this wasn't just, this was right at the start. This wasn't even, like, at the end when they'd been, like, worked into a frenzy because of all their love of statues. This was right at the beginning. They were standing at the barricades, chucking stuff at the police and doing Nazi salutes at them and shouting at them. But the, the tweet I saw from the Conservative Party chairman yesterday, it just said... Well, I mean, there are people on both sides of this argument who are very bad. And that was it. So there was no... Donald Trump does this too. There was no direct condemnation of the people that were misbehaving yesterday. No. It was just, well, there are bad eggs on both sides. What are you going to do? Yeah, I know. And it's... I don't know. It's that, it's that sense that we're trivialising and it's, and it's, and it's a... Julia, Hart, Julia Hartley Brewer, for example, who, who presents the breakfast show on, on Talk Radio... Are you, have you got have you got my script in front of you? Because I was literally about to talk about her as well. Um, that she she's tweeted today yes. um, that there was there's a, there was a memorial put up for anyone who doesn't know a memorial put up for um, the police officer who died on Westminster Bridge during the terrorist attacks three years ago. I think very close to three yeah. years ago today, yeah. really. It's, uh, I think just over three years ago, and um, there was a a man photographed yesterday urinating um right next to the statue and obviously people made the point quite rightly that if they cared so much about uh british values and and, and openness and honesty and all these different things and, and and they cared about statues and memorials then you would not urinate on it no but Julia what did Brewer Julia has come out with a very very intelligent comment ian if you would like to provide us with what that is well she said if you look carefully he was urinating beside the statue, not on the statue. Or the plaque, sorry. Mm. Um, 
So I mean, that's, I mean, she was making a very distinct, a very distinct difference there. That she, the guy, he wasn't actually peeing on the plaque to uh, was it Keith Palmer? Keith Palmer, uh, yes, that was yeah. So he he wasn't urinating on the plaque. He was just urinating right beside the plaque. So I mean, that's fine. Nothing that's shows fine. respect like urinating next to. No, if I was to go to visit my grandparents' graves and there was somebody urinating 15 centimetres <laughs> beside their headstones, I would think, oh, that's fine. They're not actually peeing on their gravestones. No. They're just beside their gravestones. That's fine. That's very respectful. They must love statues and gravestones, these people. I know. And it's the, it's the entire context of what we're living in is that her radio programme all week, because I listen to the first 10 minutes every day of it pretty much. Yes. Her radio program every week is very much a case of, like, on Monday, she was she has a very world-weary voice when she speaks about this. It's as if, mm. you know, she's just let down by the fact that people are protesting about these things, the Black Lives Matter protests, and, and the statue. And she was like, well, Edward Colston, who was the statue that was... Um, taken yeah. away in Bristol. Well, everybody understands his story. I've researched his story. I know about his story. I know about Edward Colston. And 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 it's through that statue that that we understand his significance and place in history. And he's been a philanthropist and given a great amount of money to Bristol. Um, and it's a, just a mob mentality going in and, and, and knocking it over. Um, and it's just so missing the point. It's just so missing the point that we're living in a country which is currently in the midst of a pandemic, which is adversely affecting uh, people of colour. Yeah. And that's not what we're focused on. The fact that our NHS is populated in terms of, especially in terms of the, the key workers, the nurses and the cleaners and, and all the people that have kept the NHS going, these heroes that we love so much and we've been clapping or were clapping for for a week of Upon week upon week and yet when they're coming out and basically saying look we are being discriminated against we are feeling that we are not getting an equal share of society um that we turn it into oh it's a mob mentality it's mob rule they're not doing it in the right way they're not pro protesting in the right way in fact they shouldn't be protesting at the moment because there's a pandemic on and you're like well when should they protest yeah. Because you're never going to, because they're dying in mm -hmm. disproportionate numbers from a pandemic. And I don't know if you saw the report today, and none of this is political, this is just factual, is that the, the report that's been leaked today from Public Health England is that part of the reason behind the higher number of deaths of people of colour is the fact that it's discrimination, it's the fact that it's deprivation as well. So when else are you going to protest where else are you going to get the protests only occur because of flashpoints something yeah. has to happen for a protest to occur they don't happen out of nothing it's not you can't do that unless you have the entire weight of the country's media behind you which case you can do a sort of you know that can lead to to charges like brexit for example there was no flashpoint but because there was the nation's media it could build and it could snowball yeah uh, people of well, I mean, are not going to have that. Yeah, that's true. It's very true. I mean, you look at the, the media. You talk about the media. You I mean, did you see the front page of the Mail on Sunday this morning? Um, I mean, yeah, this morning, the Mail on Sunday, the Mail on Sunday said, what happened to the tolerant <laughs> Britain we used to love? You think, well, 
you you poisoned it for the last three or four yeah. years. I mean, more than that, obviously, but you know, during the Brexit debate, you poisoned the tolerant British public. I know. Um, and what what is yeah. tolerance anyway? Like, I'm not really sure. Like, tolerance is the wrong word as well. I hate that really word tolerance, to be honest. Because if you're tolerating somebody, you're accepting their that you know they're doing something wrong, and you're just accepting it. You're tolerating them. Yes. Yeah, it's like parents. I mean, I like when my parent, like when my kids, if we're driving somewhere and the kids are being annoying, but I don't want to crash the car, I tolerate their bad behavior yeah. because I don't want to crash the car. But it suggests that people of, um, you know, any kind of ethnic background are just to be exactly. tolerated. And that's and, and it. It, it does really, a really yeah. horrible message. I mean, I suppose one thing is there are certain papers that this week have, have ran. Um, uh, banner headlines saying Black Lives Matter on them, which you might not normally expect them to. Uh, which is a good thing. Mm. Um, you know, and there are things that might be changing and things that might be happening and some good might come out of this. I think the the difficulty that we have is that um, a recession um, disproportionately affects the poorer part of society. And part of what the Black Lives Matter movement is talking about is is not just police brutality, although that is a huge part of it. It's that, you know, there's not equality in society um, in terms of um, economics. And with a recession coming as it is, you know, you do have to protest. You do have to make a big, a big noise because you can't be forgotten when that starts. The last recession was horrendous for anybody who is lower working class. Of any colour, to be honest, but a lower working class, and um, yeah. and this recession could be equally bad, if not worse. Oh, absolutely, and it's nobody's fault. Yeah, other than exactly, the and, and 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 I think that that's that's a really important point. Is that at this point, the recession is nobody's fault. What we do next will determine that. You know, what we do next is how mm. do you stimulate the economy? Who do you focus on? Do you focus on the the FTSE 100 companies and get them back into profit or get the share prices mm. up or do you focus on the debt level in terms of like the, the Conservative government did in 2010 when they came in uh, or the coalition government, should I say, what do you focus on? And that's going to be the big test of, of all of the countries, uh, the Western countries, I think. Well, I mean, we're already, the, the, the media are priming us for this because they keep telling us how much it's costing the government to fund mm. the furloughing scheme and to fund all the various other schemes they have in place for the self-employed or what have you. But, I mean, the money that's been put into this is still nowhere near as much money as they gave to the banks back in 2008 no. and the banks been failing out. And, and I, don't remember the, I don't remember the media going on quite so much about it. Saying, well, this is costing seventy-six billion pounds to bail out this bank. <laughs> I mean, at least this time the money. At least this time the money. That, you know, it's, I mean, that's, it, there was an outrage at the time because it was tax. People were outraged. That it was like taxpayers' money was going to help pay the banks. This is taxpayers' money being given back to taxpayers so that they can pay their bills and buy food and not lose their houses. So I don't know why there's this kind of full outrage. At, oh, the billions this is costing to the taxpayers are having to fork out billions to save the taxpayers. Really I don't think there is, and also it's, it's for you know to, to to be fair the 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 furloughing scheme isn't very 
<laughs> it's a very good scheme and I, and I'm sure we'd all love it to have been 100% and I'm sure we'd love it to be able to last until everyone can go back to work um, because that would be better but if you think about it the the, the only thing that's going to get us out of this recession when we can start to fight back from it is that is people buying things because that's the only way you can get out of recession yeah. whether it's us buying things or it's countries buying things off us um or people in other countries buying things from that are produced here that's the only way you can ever get out of a recession and so people need to have some money they can't be utterly destitute they can't be credit cards maxed out yeah. already because they were just trying to buy food and electricity and you know keep the roof over their heads it's why the kind of austerity mindset never really made sense to me it was the idea that to, to generate economic mm. growth you make people poorer doesn't really make sense and i think this time round people are feeling the pinch there'll be people who've not made any money i mean i'm self-employed i've not made a lot of money since the pandemic began and there'll be a lot of people in a similar yeah. situation so if there is more austerity and more cuts to come people are already feeling the pinch right now well we don't have austerity it's going to be um grim times i just hope these guys that were out yesterday in force put their money back into <laughs> buying lots of statues well yes i mean I, I don't know how the statue industry is currently going but you know certainly if they they put their money forward i mean farage doesn't have a statue yet yeah um so there's him oh he's just um, lost his job this week so He's just you know, um, so David Cameron, I don't believe, has a statue. Could be wrong. Um, so, you know, there's plenty so. of people whose statues haven't yet been put up. You know, so we could mm. go forward with that. I mean, I do think, though, that I think what's what's troubling now is that this has been a... Whilst COVID was on, I mean, COVID's still going on, obviously. But whilst the focus was on COVID, there was very much a case of across the country, if not necessarily in the political world, a sense that we're all in this together. Even when lockdown began to ease, even with the Dominic Cummings story, there was a sense that we were all in this together. My fear is that the Black Lives Matter, not them themselves, they're absolutely right to protest and free to protest, and I have no issues with their protesting, obviously. Mm -hmm. But it's now provoked a culture war where we're not all in it together anymore. Yeah, um, And yeah. That's that's worrying moving forward. Um and that's I mean, obviously we've got football coming back on Wednesday, so in England, obviously, but mm. you know, it's a global it's a global league as the Premier League. So um football is coming back, which is a hopefully will bring people back together again. Yes. Just like good quality television well, exactly. can bring people um, together. Are you, are you thinking of any particular television Ian? Well, yes, I mean, I've been watching a lot of quality television this week, um, but I was thinking more of, you know, in a time like this, when there's so much uncertainty, it's quite nice to revisit old television programmes, and it's like having a nice, comfortable blanket put around your shoulders, isn't it? So, I mean, I thought it might be time for us to turn oh, our it's attention time for the once lockdown, again to the everybody. Okay, so... It's lockdown. We're not going to do too much of a recap this week, but suffice to say, at the very end of last week's episode, John Joe, the abattoir's son, the abattoir owner's son, had been found in the back of a van outside the village hall with his head smashed in. 
Um, Annie, our main mm. character, police sergeant detective woman, had found him and stood behind her was a mysterious man. Yes. A man who we'd only seen in a kind of hostel shouting looking at, at a television screen. With his hands Indeed. shaking. Clearly quite But distressed. we don't know any characters called Dolly, do we? <laughs> not yet. No, well, not so, yet. Cut to the opening credits. And now we're in episode four of The Loch. How did you find it, Ian? Mm. I found it, <laughs> I would say, quite appalling. <laughs> I mean, I quite enjoyed it because this is where... It, it, I think when we watched this originally four years ago... This is when it tipped into the ridiculous, properly tipped over into the ridiculous. There were so many stupid, ridiculous moments. And I think what, what, what absolutely um, um, sort of um, exaggerates that for us, particularly, is I think I looked at the dates when these were first aired, and the lock started when I was still living abroad, but it finished when I'd moved back home. Right. And I think that this was the first episode. Okay. That was screened when I'd come home. So therefore me and you started talking about it. Which is why I think ah. this episode might live in our memories longer. Although as we discuss it, we'll see that it's quite right that it lives in our memories. Yes, I mean people often talk about classic episodes of television. Yes. This is one of our classic episodes. For all the wrong episodes. reasons. For all the, the first time that I'm actually going to give um, a bit of a pass to the writer to an extent. Not completely. There's a lot of things that we're going to oh. talk about where the writer has to hold his hands up. But I think this was a very badly directed episode. Or edited episode, depending okay. on how you want oh, to describe about, it. Yeah. But I would probably put badly directed, mm -hmm. badly paced episode. I think that there were certain scenes towards the end of the episode that were just quite frankly ridiculous. But written down on the page probably sounded yes. quite exciting. Uh, but we'll get we'll come yeah. to that. Um, which plotline do we want yes. to focus on first? Because there's kind of two very distinct plotlines, I oh, think, wow. in, in this week's episode. There's what? No, sorry, I, mean, I was going to say there's two. Oh, just go on, sorry. sorry for the listener. There's the one about the college um, lecturer slash professor person uh, being interviewed mm -hmm. by the police because they think he is a prime suspect, and there's the plotline with Leighton who is the man who's on probation for murder. Um, and I think that the plot lines surrounding each of those are the kind of key drivers of the plot. Is that true? I would say so, yes. I mean, unfortunately, I kind of forget everything apart from the <laughs> storyline involving Leighton and his, um, his former Mr. friend, Oliver Mr. Oliver Tench. I think, if, if, if I may, I'd quite like to leave the Tench Latent plot line to set. Yes. If we focus on the college professor first. Well, I think that's good <laughs> because it creates tension for the listener. Yes, indeed. Something no, the episode no. Doesn't so really if do we really focus well. on the, the the college professor first. Um, that that plot line yeah. thread is basically he has a mysterious locked study in his house. Not that mysterious, really. Just the study that he locks. I mean, he's got children we discover in this episode, yes. which I don't think we knew before. There's a certain no, logic that if you're a psychologist before. person um, who also is a head of pastoral care, it appears, at your college, 
there makes a certain sense that you would lock your study because obviously you don't want your children yeah. coming in and finding potentially confidential papers. Um, so the, yeah. that takes away a bit. But anyway, that was supposed to be quite mysterious. He also found the body of the piano teacher and he also threw away the phone mm. of the piano teacher. So there are some suggestions yeah. that he should be in the frame. There was another piece of cluage. Cluage? That's not a word. There was another clue. Um about him at the end of the previous week's episode, if you remember, which what, mm-hmm. which was the, what was it again, <laughs> the crossword thing, was it not to do with handwriting? He, he, the imprint of his handwriting was on a crossword found near the where the yes. piano teacher had been pushed I, from the hill. Yes, that's right. I think and it was presented, and this is how it started. He was invited in for an interview the next morning. He turns up at this interview. Um, and they sit down opposite him and they present this defining piece of evidence. The fact that he left a newspaper up where the, where, where the music teacher was pushed off the hill or the cliff. Mm-hmm. And he very simply says to that, which I loved, he very simply said, I don't do crosswords <laughs> and I would never buy that paper. Ask anyone. And I'm yeah. like, ooh, that's quite yeah. good. Because if you just go and ask random people, does this guy do crosswords? And they all go, no. Does he buy that? Go to the news agents. Does he buy this paper ever? No. Ah, but you have very similar handwriting to an imprint we found on it. We don't have forensic <laughs> evidence to suggest that you wrote on this paper, but we have an imprint that somebody with handwriting like you wrote on this paper. And our top-notch psychologist is certain that that is right. I mean, it just struck me as like the flimsiest. It's well, the problem is Don Gilly's character is supposed to be this kind of guru. He's meant to be like every. I mean, the, the college yeah. professor knew who he was, obviously. Um, everybody knows who he is. Everybody's read his book, and he's meant to be this maverick genius. But we talked about this last week. Every every time he does anything. To do with his police yeah. work, and he's rubbish. He's really bad. He's really and, dreadful. And it's funny because it, a couple of weeks ago, I watched um, an old Cracker story, like the three. You know, Cracker was often in three episode arcs. Robbie Coltrane yeah. is Cracker, and in every scene, virtually, Robbie Coltrane is the smartest man in the room. And oh, he obviously has his demons and his flaws and his mm. faults, but he's the smartest guy in the room and he says the cleverest things and he has insights to things that you're like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. Um, and I'm sure that yeah. Don Gile's character is supposed to reflect that as well. Except, and it's not Don Gile's fault for the most part. It's really no. not his fault, but it's just, it's just lacking in the depth. So they, they managed to get... Um, somehow they managed to get a warrant to search his property. Um, so off they trot. And, and Mr. Albrighton manages to get permission to attend this search. Um, and he does something very odd, if you ask me, during this search. Do you remember what he does? <laughs> Is this when he, like, yes. opens up the computer? I mean... I love, again, you commented on this last week, I love how <laughs> none of these dodgy guys use passwords on their laptops. And also, 
if there's anything incriminating or shifty on the computer, they make sure <laughs> to leave that open right in front of them. You know, so like last week it was the doctor and the girl with the milkshakes. This week it was um, the doctor and his kind of slightly odd sounding interviews with his pupils. But he left that video open right yes. in front uh, of his computer. But yeah, Don Gilly brought out a USB stick and downloaded yes, those files so utterly bizarre because they have a warrant yeah. to search the property and therefore can see yeah, anything but... that they might believe is evidence absolutely because i'm not in the police but i would imagine that if you're using evidence <laughs> that you've stolen from us from a place where you've just uh, you've got a warrant for if you steal evidence and don't declare no, it, you probably can't use that evidence just take the laptop they don't even need to steal the files. Yes, I know. Even even if they did, they couldn't take the laptop. They, they, that was just so stupid. Yeah. But then I think, because the, the camera drew a lot of attention to the fact that he put the USB thing in his pocket, I reckon he loses that in one of the next two episodes. Maybe. You could and be that's right. a different plot um, and, But even, even the interviews, which seems slightly odd, One the one thing that I do seem slightly odd and relatively sinister is Evie isn't in the interviews. Is he only interviewing males? Yes. Which it would seem so. Well, there was an inference there that he does. had a gay relationship. And, and, but I don't think they, and maybe they're waiting for next week to draw the illusion to the fact that they're trying to, to connect this guy to sort of having a um, sort of feelings towards these pupils and that's what he's having these 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 sessions about with them. But what you could argue is the three people that he's talking about, one of them is clearly quite um, aggressive and bullying so you'd think that there would be pastoral um interventions talking to them about their behavior and how they feel and why they feel the way they do approaching anger management techniques the other one is clearly bullied so you would suggest that they would talk to him about how he's feeling about these things and and what his what his view of these are and, and how he has coping strategies towards it and the third one has a brother in a coma so therefore, he's obviously suffered quite mm. a lot of trauma, especially if he has to sort of care for his brother. So therefore, he would require quite a bit of counselling. There was nothing that we saw in those videos that is in and of itself sinister. Uh, it's no. out of context. No, no, no. But, but, but within the context of if you're going to ha- yeah. try and have fully fledged characters in the story, which the writer obviously wants from us, then... Um, Nothing that we saw there is overly incriminating. No, we're still just looking at the imprint of some handwriting that and might then, look a bit like his on a newspaper. And, 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 and that's Mr. what we're this whole case on. Then says in a flash of genius that uh, this guy's got 140 IQ. He's got a first from Cambridge in psychology. What is he doing in this little two-bit town in this two-bit college? unless he wants people to manipulate them. And I'm like, well, maybe there might be an element of that. But also, look at his house, which is gorgeous. He's the head of a college in a beautiful Mm. town by a beautiful lock with all... I mean, his quality of life is wonderful. Yes, he's got a nice wife. He's got kids. You know, he gets... And if somehow really bad that he runs some kind of meditation sessions. (laughs) That's very sinister. And yet... At the beginning of the episode, if you remember, Don Gilly described the murderer that we were looking for. He he used those he, he used these words. He said, "What he wants is he wants us to experience chaos," which makes it sound like we're yes. dealing with the Joker. 
in the dark night, doesn't it? Not a guy that lives in a nice house and works at a college and does some but, but mindfulness But also what it students. does is it has complete carte blanche to basically say, yeah, he's a serial killer, if it turns out to be a serial killer, who has no way of killing people, has no pattern to why he kills people. Um, so you can't draw a link that it's definitively the same person. You can't do that. If th- That's yeah. the whole point. If you want someone to experience no. chaos, that means the police run around thinking they've got different murderers. But there's nobody arguing that case. No. They just think, well, th- this is what I'm saying. Don Gilly or Blake Albrighton is made out to be this genius that whatever he says, it's unquestioned. Yeah. People just go, yep, yep, you'll be right. He wrote some books. He knows his stuff. Have you noticed as well, while we're talking about Don Gilly, you know, like det- TV detectives often have the thing, you know, like Kojak and his lollipop and Columbo and his, his yeah. big coat and his and another thing. Um, have you noticed what Don Gilly's thing is? This? Reveal it. Oh, I, I only noticed it last night. He plays. Oh, this, I mean, this is amazing. He often it, plays with. Band? Oh, go on. Yeah, he plays with elastic bands. <laughs> now I wonder if that's the writer or if Don is such a character. You know, like he's a, a kind of method actor that he was like really get into this character, and he thought this is a guy who likes to stretch the limits. So I thought the best thing for him to yeah, be to play with elastic bands. Yeah. I just noticed three scenes last night. I can see it being the writer because I can't believe the writer didn't want to create a kind of running the lock. It might have had a very poor first season title because I can imagine that the the DCI, Siobhan Finneran, and Mr. Albrighton would have a running... uh, This might have a second season. Uh, Maybe maybe it would be set in the lock. Maybe it would be a Midsummer Murders-esque. Uh, ridiculous number of murders happening in the small yes. location. I don't know, um, but the last to, to, to sort of end it on the because we need to get on to Mister Tench uh, to end it on the psychology mm-hmm. professor whose name I have no idea of. Uh, was that Mister Petrie? Mister Petrie. Uh, Petrie. We saw this outstanding Robert De Niro, Al Pacino in Heat scene. Where all Brighton <laughs> and Petrie faced off in the interview room, um, they presented him with mm. um, the music teacher's phone records, which suggest that Petrie was in constant contact with him for the few weeks before he died, adding grist to the mill that they were having some kind of affair with each other. Um, and then Petrie began to say to all Brighton, basically got under his skin by suggesting that it was Albrighton's fault that his sister had died and he was always looking to try and fill that yeah. vacuum of, of, of guilt from his sister being murdered. And Gile, or Albrighton rather, completely yeah. loses it and commits assault. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Once well, again, he he's not really good at his job. A police station. He'll never pass a DBS check again. He will not be able to have any form of work with the police yeah. because there is no question that he committed the assault. He should not be. So he'll it not was be unprovoked as well. It was utterly unprovoked. There was no physical violence suggested yeah. by Mr. Petrie. He was sat, relaxed in his seat. Mm. He, he didn't pr- pr- promote any kind of aggression whatsoever. And um, Albrighton punched him three times, I think, in the face. 
um, which is probably because it's a first offence, not much more than a than a community order, but it would be a community order and a criminal record, um, and therefore he would not be allowed in any kind of criminal investigation for a good while, at least, if not forever. And, um, you know, in some ways it might prove better because in episodes five and six, he might now be a renegade beyond the law, trying to solve this case outside the bounds. But, um, yeah, the fact that he was just allowed just to go home. He wasn't arrested. He wasn't, you know, nothing happened to him. He could just go home. No, he, he didn't even get told, yeah, he didn't he get had... told off. You think of some of the things that Laura, Laura Fraser got shouted at because her daughter was involved in a crime, which wasn't actually directly her fault. But he's just beaten up a suspect who wasn't really doing anything wrong. And yet he was just talking about... And it wasn't like it was this complete destruction of Albrighton's character. It was like within 20 seconds. No. No, he snapped very quickly. Well, they didn't have <laughs> enough time because the episode <laughs> so... was due to end. But... Uh... It really was. Yeah. It was a sort of and again, there's, the there's a flaw in the writing there. That's that's a flaw in the writing. I think the Petrie side of the storyline was a flaw in the writing. Um, that we hadn't fleshed out either of their characters enough. Like, if Albrighton really was a maverick genius and this happened, then you could imagine everybody going to the to the wall for him to try and protect him and save him. Mm-hmm. But only the DCI seems to have any regard for him anyway. He hasn't produced any insights. Um, I, no. And she only seems to like him because it's yeah, still living exactly. some kind of sexual it's, it's, thing with him It's utterly past. bizarre that because there was some kind of sexual thing in the past that she values him, because she doesn't seem to value him that highly, that she would get him back on this case after one death as well. Mm. Like, remember, he was introduced after one death, not three. That's right. So, if anything, he's the yes, one that's experienced chaos. Maybe, maybe that's what it so is. Maybe he's the murderer. But I think we should get on to Tench now. Uh, so, Tench, oh, talk to me about yeah. Tench. Mr. Oliver Tench, who we, we learn was, along with Leighton, um, was reprimanded for being involved in a murder when he was younger. And. We don't. We, we, I mean, we don't really get much background. What was his motivation, just, Ian, I mean, for coming to Scotland? I wrote down. Can I just say I've written down why I wrote about halfway through the episode because I've got a little pad that I write things on when I watch this, and I just wrote why is he actually here? Why does he suddenly want to turn up? Because I mean, all that happens is you find out midway through the episode he starts saying, "Let's do him. Let's do him. Let's murder this person. Let's let's carry on." Um, let's carry on killing like we did 20 years ago. And that seems to be his only motivation, is to be yes. there and, and kill people. And he says something like, there's a bit where he says, oh, I didn't write it down. There's a bit, there's a bit where Leighton's like, oh, what are you talking about, man? Why do you want to do that? And then uh, Oliver Tench says, if I walk away, I'll just vanish. And you're like, well, what? that sounds good. <laughs> Isn't that better than going back to jail? Just what, vanish. What's that so sounds good. weird do about that. it is that... <laughs> so weird. I was just going to start talking about it and I just find it so utterly weird is that he seems to want to come to do a killing spree um, however when yeah. Alan who is um, the one that they say let's do him he finds out his name or all the attempts actually just hands him his name on a plate um, 
he looks him up. Yeah. Um, and we discovered that actually they weren't just murderers. Actually, the murders came about because they were robbing people. They were robbing people for money and yes. in the midst of it killed them. And I think we're supposed to implicitly suggest get that they um that, that, that they got some thrill from this. As young men, they were getting a thrill from killing. Uh, however, mm-hmm. Leighton, or Dolly, because he, he's managed to he's been able to change his name, which is really weird because if you if you looked at the that's that's the oddest thing of them all. Because if you looked at the newspaper reports, um Leighton or Dolly was older than Tench. And yet it's him that's allowed to change his name mm. and Tench has not been. That doesn't make any yeah, sense doesn't at all. Make any sense at all. Uh, but there's what's supposed to be a very, very um tense scene where Laura Fraser comes round to talk to, to Leighton, <laughs> not about anything in particular. Um, she sees two plates mm. set out and she says, Oh, are you hungry? Which is not the response that you would see if you saw two plates. You would say, oh, who's coming round? Uh, because they were opposite ends of the table yes. too. It's not like they were sat next to each other, like you couldn't fit all of his food onto two plates. I mean, onto one plate. <laughs> no, there wasn't so that much two plates. She sits yeah. down opposite him. And they just start talking, a fairly inconsequential conversation, really. Um, and Mr. Tench emerges from behind a theatrical curtain I'm not sure what he was coming out from behind. <laughs> it's like a hospital curtain. There's like these white yeah, curtains all over this he guy's dining room. With a sharp yeah. knife in hand. And Leighton has to make up some story mm. to get her out of the building because he fears that Tench is going to kill her. And yet, the rest of the episode, indeed Leighton's subsequent conversation with him, is the fact that Tench doesn't have it in him to kill anyone. Because Tench doesn't have it in him with yes. to kill anyone. Because it was Leighton that did all the killing. Um, Tench doesn't have it in him. Mm. So what was Leighton so scared of? Why did Leighton just say, look, watch out behind you, and then dive to help her? That's a weird guy. It, it, it really doesn't make any yeah. sense. I also wonder... Does does Mr. Tench have some kind of power of invisibility and silence cloaking him? Because in that scene especially, when he was standing behind Laura Fraser, yes. Leighton looked up at him. And if that had been me, I would have turned around immediately. And he he, he, he moves about, no. and she's got no awareness of him being there. And then later on in the episode, yes. when he's following Annie's husband... Again, he's right behind him, and never right until the very end, he doesn't turn around and see him. So it's like he's wearing it's, Harry Potter's invisibility very, cloak most of the time. It's, it's quite hilarious. And you also have, well, I'm not sure what to deal with first. I think we might need to deal with the key scene, the scene that's lived with us for three years here. Because bear in mind, the, 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 the original reason why they ended up killing people back in the day, twenty years ago, was because they were committing robberies. They were supposed to be, they've been. They'd been um, hurt by the system, I think we we're supposed to get, and they were both poor young lads, and they went on a, you know, a, a, a robbing spree that ended up killing people, and they were doing it for money and thrill-seeking. So Leighton offers Tench £3,000 to go away. So, mm. but Tench, well, Tench, Tench essentially takes the money from him eventually, 
he's very upset to do so. He doesn't want to leave Leighton. He wants to stick with him so that they can be serial killers together, I presume. Um, in this little <laughs> town where everybody knows your name. But anyway. Yes. So he takes the ten the, the three thousand pounds, walks away, and then we see him on a beach by the loch. But not he's not gone far away, has he? He hasn't gone out into the countryside <laughs> no. or out, you know, I mean, obviously the banks of Loch Lomond stretch, I mean, sorry, Loch Ness stretch for miles. He has literally just walked down the steps from the local jetty where he was sleeping the night yeah, before. Where he was sleeping the night before. He started a fire despite it being the middle of the day and he didn't have a fire when he slept the night before. But anyway, in the middle of the day, he starts a fire and he's drinking some special brew. And what does he do, Ian? He takes the £3,000 in the bag and flings it onto the Is fire. Is he crying and starts about, about £3,000 that he's burning? <laughs> I think, I mean, it's so, I mean that's, this is the moment yes. that you and I were just so angry about. Because, like, I mean, it's £3,000. The guy is homeless. He's living in a hostel. And he's sleeping on a beach next to a loch, which has got to be freezing. And yet, he's just got three grand. He could go and stay in a hotel for several weeks. He could go and do something with the money, go and buy himself with some new clothes or buy a nice new life over. But he decides to... Absolutely. That's it. For someone with nothing, £3,000 is a lot of money. And he instead would rather sit on the beach, cry about not being able to go on a killing spree with his old friend, <laughs> who he's not seen for 20 years. It's not like it's his, his best friend. It's a guy he's not seen since he was a kid. And then burns... Three thousand pounds. So poor Leighton, who's been saving all that money, gone, and now Tench has no money again. Gone. It's just utterly stupid. It's such a stupid, and it does, doesn't. It doesn't serve any. I don't know if it was meant to be a powerful scene and me meant to make us feel something for this character that they've only introduced for one episode, but it was just irritating. I mean, the the problem I had with a lot of the Tench stuff is, and I'm sure you're the same. Yes, his dialogue was abysmal. There was a bit. I mean, they try and make. They try and make character moments. There's a bit when he's making him his breakfast. He says, "Oh, oh do you yeah. remember when you made that drink where it was half coffee, half tea?" And he was like, "Oh, that was the nuts." And then there was another bit when he described like how he'd seen the murder, and he started to just <laughs> grunt through and went, "Yeah, Ugh. classic Dolly." It's just it's really bad writing, and I don't think it's the actor's fault necessarily. I just think the writing was absolutely. And what did you see? Remember, bear in mind what we always have to come back to is the only murder that had been definitively proved when that television interview was shown was the fact that a guy had been thrown off a cliff. That's quintessential Dolly. Yes. Throwing a man off a cliff and taking a bit of his brain yes. and putting it in a poly pocket and hiding it in a cairn. That's classic Dolly. I mean, it does, it does, yeah. and none of it stacks up. None of it stacks up. And that's where we're talking about the bad direction as well. Like you're saying with the invisibility cloak, it's just badly directed. You know, you don't need to show the scenes that, that you know, of Alan walking through the village. And and, uh, and why is he going up to wherever no. he went up to is utterly beyond me to drink a bottle of whiskey. Uh, On his own. Uh, because yeah, he's, he's working a murder case. Uh, I mean, the direction, the direction is so bad that the, my, I was watching this last night. What I tend to do is I put it on the telly and I've got, we've got an Apple TV thing set up in the living room mm. and I can connect my AirPods to it 
So I can put stuff on the screen that the kids don't have to, you know, my kids are sitting looking at their iPads. They're not even looking at the telly. Uh, so I can sit and I can be fully immersed in the world of the loch. But one of my children noticed there was very poor continuity. He was kind of watching this a wee bit because he knew I was watching it to do this podcast with you today. And he said to me, um, I, I hadn't actually noticed this. He said, that man, he was talking about 10, she went, that, that man's knife keeps changing. Oh. Like the continuity was dreadful. And like, see when like when he first starts approaching Alan on the hill, he said, he, my son said to me, is he going to stab him with that butter knife? And sure enough, oh, at Lord. one point he was holding a butter knife. And then when he was holding up yeah. to Alan's throat, it was like a sharp knife or somebody was holding it up to somebody's throat. So there was there was little bits of it where he was actually holding a butter knife. They obviously couldn't be bothered finding a sharp knife, so they just gave him a, a, a butter knife instead. Uh, uh, just yeah. dreadful. There's also really the bad. fact that I mean, just on a on a I mean, one never listen wishes to too much kind of go like when you're watching a hospital drama and, and a doctor might say, Oh, well that's not really how it would happen. The fact is this man has turned up at Leighton's door. Um not on request. He hasn't been invited. In fact, Leighton tries to get rid of him several times. And yet, for some reason, Leighton is arrested mm. because this guy's around. You know, he's arrested because this guy's mm. about. Um, which doesn't make any sense. Uh, you wouldn't be sent back to prison for that. No. Because it's not your fault more than anything else. Um, then we also have, which I thought, and in, 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 in this week of Black Lives Matters, I don't know if this is off color or not, and so I apologize very much if it is. They said, get out a description of what Tench looks like. After watching three and a half earlier episodes of The Loch, Oliver Tench is the only person of color other than Don Gili. <laughs> Shouldn't be that hard to find. Yes, him. I know. Like every single face is white. No, definitely not. Other than. Um, mm. Oliver Tench or Don Gili. I just thought that was a good, let's get out of his description. It's been like, well, that shouldn't be that hard, guys. Mm. He's just walking through the village. He's not trying to hide himself. He's holding a knife in his hand. And he's also. Yes, he's literally got. Yeah, he's got a knife in front um, of him. So he's walking about. He's the only other person of color other than the guy that we've just sent home for assaulting someone. Just don't arrest him. Mm. Um, <laughs> I did feel that was a bit. I mean, the direction also oh, when, yeah. when, when Tench stabs Alan. The direction of that was just very, very mm. poor. Um, the stumbling around, the fact that Tench yeah. didn't finish the job, the fact that it was just very clunky. Um, the fact that I, th I think we're supposed to presume that Leighton is going to go back to prison now, despite the fact that he's just saved somebody's life. Uh, yeah. Like no. you said, Leighton hasn't done anything wrong. I mean, he's clearly done. I mean, I think. Remember, yes, they found and that's a big stops were fake. Don't get me wrong, that I mean, is a big deal because he's that is a big deal. Something. But, but that's not what they. Yeah, but that doesn't seem to be what they've got a problem with. It's the fact yeah. that he's been consulted um, with criminals. And again. in the grand scheme of all kind of detective shows, there is always a potential suspect who lies, not because they've done the crime, but they're trying to hide something else. Um, in which 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 this is. Yeah. Um, we also have the fact that the sheer lunacy of the fact that Annie goes to Leighton and talks to Leighton and indeed talks to Tench while her husband is bleeding from the chest um, yeah. and then doesn't go to <laughs> hospital with him and goes back to the station like because we see her in the next scene at the, at the police station looking through CCTV footage yeah 
So what happened? Oh, he went in the ambulance. At the top of the hill. Uh, uh, but she didn't go with him. No, she she appeared to contact Evie. There doesn't seem to be an emotional scene of, oh, goodness, your father's being hurt. Oh, didn't, didn't, didn't the husband yeah, say something like, I'm that's sorry, about I lied. Either, do we? Um, I can't so, remember what and, that's about. And, so, and then we finish with this thing, and this thing is actually quite good, to be honest, in the entire episode. It's probably the best part of the episode, which is that the very final scene is we see a man getting out of a van, the van that John Joe's body was found in. We see him for the first time close up. What I thought was hilarious, though, even within that scene, was that we see him going into the petrol station with a coat on and a shirt with a collar. Um, and Siobhan Finneran says to... We see his face very clearly. Siobhan Finneran says to her police people, go and speak to the petrol station owner, find out if this guy had any tats or scars. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> unless he's got we can very, see he doesn't. you know, unless he's got hand tattoos, which let's be honest, is not going to narrow it down too much. Then, I mean, it's just such a pointless scene. Why no. she didn't just say, get to the petrol station, see if you paid with a card. Then, then, you know, we're, we're, yeah. I'm sure you could just phone the petrol station owner because you've gone and got the CCTV footage off him anyway. Um, but anyway, we do that, and then obviously we cut to the body underneath the lock, and we see that it's him, which is a clever device. That yeah. is a clever device. That was good. So if it just if the episode had been the last, it would have been ninety fine. seconds. It would um, been fine. I do wonder if they'd taken the tench stuff out of that. Like if the, if if there hadn't been because that that episode we just watched was yes. largely the tench stuff. And I think if you take the tension stuff out, it really wouldn't change the story. If anything, it would probably make it better and it would sort of hang together yeah. a little bit. Like we said, I'm fairly certain we said this last week, if they'd taken out Siobhan Finneran's character and Don Gile's character and just le- left it to Annie and the slightly young <laughs> uniformed police officer, yeah. we would be much better off. Yeah. If it just been the, the local police and, you know, Annie's husband and daughter and the, the community yeah. in the area, it would have been fine. But I think you're right. I think the person writing this thought, you know what? The nation's going to fall in love with Don Gilly and they're going to want more of this. They're going to want, like, it's going to become the next season called Albrighton. Yeah. And it'll just be like the new Morse. But that didn't happen. People didn't fall in love with this. No. Um, and I think that's the thing, is I think there's two stick. parts to it. One is that Don, the, the, the writing wasn't strong enough to create an iconic character like a, a cracker. But second of all, cracker, mm. one of the reasons why cracker became such a huge thing. One of the reasons why Morse became such a huge thing uh, and indeed Luther became such a big thing was that um, Robbie Coltrane, John Thaw, Idris Elba have such immense charisma uh, when they walk on screen that you're in love, partly in love with them before they've even spoken. You know, and and, and Gile just doesn't. Uh, It needed almost stunt casting. Not stunt casting, that's the wrong word. Event casting. That's what I mean. You needed event casting in that role. Because Siobhan Finneran, as great an actress as she is, she's a serious character, character actress, as is um, Laura Fraser. John Sessions is odd because he's a comedy character, or comedy actor, rather. So he's odd casting, Mm. as is the man from Absolutely. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh. 
there was a bit at the start that I thought was weird, and I remember finding this weird when we watched it first time. Is it normal <laughs> for parents to just wander into autopsies? No. Because they're doing an autopsy in John Joe, and the, the mum and dad just oh, walk in the middle of it and start talking. It's utterly it's brilliant. That moment. Yeah. I love that moment probably better than any other. <laughs> they just wandered. I was like, why are the mum and dad allowed to walk into their own son's autopsy? Oh, very Pretty funny. Sure that anyway, I've just looked at the time. And we need to stop talking because, yeah, we could talk about the lock for a long time. What I'm concerned about is I don't know what we're going to talk about about the lock now because I can't remember anything really of the last two episodes. Well, I remember like we got a kind of next time on thing at the end, and there's definitely some kind of weirdness on a school trip. But I I don't remember the last two episodes at all because it was almost like that moment where all my tension burnt the money and then chased (laughs) Alan with a butter knife. It just it felt like everything paled into insignificance oh, yeah. after that. I mean, we'll watch the last two episodes. We'll talk about yes, it. Yes, yes. So anyway, thank you for staying with us, listeners, especially since this is a bit longer than we intended. So we do appreciate your time. Um, and take yes. care in this last week. Stay safe. Um, I mean, stay alert as well, but certainly stay safe. That's what we want you to do. Indeed, yes. And yes. Stay take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.